Welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and I am back this week to review what turned out to be, as I stated before, the first time I reviewed some of the short stories in this collection, but this was my first new Stephen King publication that I read upon um, first printing, because uh, up until that point I had been reading all of Stephen King's works that had been published previous to this. So when it comes to Nightmares and Dreamstapes, guys, it will always hold a special place in my heart. So it was great for me to revisit it back when I reviewed it um, and the first you know, chunk of short stories the first time around, and it was just as fun revisiting it uh, the second time around. So what I'll be doing in this episode is pretty straightforward. I will be getting to all of the... Short stories that I did not review on my first go with, uh, with my analysis of this collection. Uh, but before I get there, I want to read some emails. So if at any point you guys have any thoughts on any of the stories found within Nightmares and Dreamscapes or anything related to Stephen King or just you know kind of want to talk about horror or books or, or whatever, shoot me an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So up first we have Jacob who writes, hello there. My name's Jacob, and I'm one-third of the Yes, Have Some podcast. I've been meaning to write you for a while. I've always loved the movies that have come from Stephen King works, but for the longest time, I wasn't reading them. A few years back, a friend and I both read It at the same time, and holy cow, it changed my life. In the last year or so, I've gotten heavily back into reading and almost exclusively Stephen King. When I found your show, I went through and listened to only what I had seen or read, and it's been great to listen to someone dissect the works the way that you do, and I'm still enjoying them as I go. Thanks so much for that. The podcast I'm started on uh, is a very Ghostbusters-heavy podcast, and We've since moved on to pop culture and movies in general. It's actually pretty funny. In your last show, which was a while ago, this is uh, an, an older email, um, you were talking about how annoyed you were getting with Sony for handling the, the Dark Tower so far, and we know all about that. We were super heavy into production with the Ghostbusters reboot, and Sony was having some of the same issues with that. It was super frustrating. In the last few months, we've talked about King a lot and mentioned your podcast multiple times. We actually all traveled to the Stanley a few weeks ago and recorded an episode from there. We are recording an entire episode tonight on the new It trailer. Can't wait to hear what you thought of that. I myself am very much looking forward to a darker, more faithful adaptation of the book. Anyway, if you want to check out our show, you can find it on iTunes at um, or you can go to the website. Yes, have some uh cast.com so we would love to have you on the show sometime thanks again dude jacob jacob thank you so much for um writing in i think that is important for us uh pop culture aficionados to be able to touch base and anyone that wants to why don't you head on over to yes have some cast.com 
And also guys, one website that you need to check out, and um, I say this not because uh, they are a sponsor of the Stephen King cast, um, it, it, it's more that the Stephen King cast at this point is uh, a sponsor in ways of, of uh, Ka-Tet19. Um, I'm telling you guys, I... It, Every episode, I sing the praises of Matt Kellick and his ability to design an incredible-looking Stephen King-inspired T-shirt that also feels comfortable. Again, and it's not because I sat down to record an episode. It's just because at this point, I own so many uh, ka-tet19.net T-shirts um, that I, I just happen to wear them all the time. So I'm I'm sitting here recording as I'm wearing my OI t-shirt and Matt has new new stuff out there um, that I think that you all should check out because the stuff looks great there is a stand uh, baseball tee um, that has the the the, the cover um, imprinted on it there is a Larry Underwood baby can I dig your man music album cover um, t-shirt that you can get um, he just created a My Life For You Trash Can Man uh, t-shirt. Um, so there, there's so many new ones to choose. There's a, okay, there's one where he has Oi holding a microphone, rocking out, and it says Billy Bumbler Throckin' in the UK Tour 1999. Um, so I, you got to get that one. That one is great. I, there, there are just so many ones out there for you. Um, there's a Nazala, there's a Dixie Pig. The, the shirts that he does, they are very, very clever. Um, they, he's not going to steer you wrong. I really think that you guys, if you haven't done so already, check them out. Check out the site because um, it, it's, it's really good stuff. There's a Pet Cemetery one. There is a Captain Trips. There is a um, Andy and Red's um, Mexico shirt. There's just so many good stuff to choose from. And I strongly, strongly recommend, um, heading on over to that website and ordering up, um, a couple, uh, or dozens of Stephen King related t-shirts. You guys will not be disappointed. So, um, with that said, I'm going to launch now into my review of the short stories I did not cover the first time around. And the first one is Dolan's Cadillac. And from Wikipedia, it states the narrator, known only by his surname Robinson, is a school teacher who lives in Las Vegas. He has become widowed after Dolan, a wealthy crime boss, had his wife murdered with a car bomb in order to prevent her from testifying against him. The murder remains unsolved, and Robinson, unskilled in the art of revenge, has no recourse. Over a seven-year period, however, Robinson, mentally haunted by his wife's voice, devises a scheme of retaliation. Discovering that Dolan regularly takes the same route along uh, State Route 71 when traveling to Los Angeles while in his Cadillac, Robinson decides to trick Dolan into taking a fake detour in which the Cadillac will crash into a ditch and he'll be buried alive. He takes on a summer job with a road paving crew so that he can learn to operate the heavy equipment needed to excavate an oblong ditch just long and deep enough to contain the car, but not so wide to allow escape through its doors. The trap works, and Dolan is stuck in a Cadillac as it crashes into the pit. One of Dolan's bodyguards is killed in the crash, while the other, crushed by the engine block, screams out in pain and panic, prompting Dolan to kill him. Robinson greets Dolan and announces an intent on burying him alive. Dolan addresses Robinson by name, prompting him to lean over the roof of the car as Dolan fires a few bullets skyward. He misses Robinson, who proceeds with the burial. 
Dolan, increasingly desperate, pleads with Robinson for his freedom, offering him a large sum of cash. Robinson merely tells him he will be released if he screams as loud as the explosives that killed his wife, gleefully listening to Dolan's cries as he completes the burial and paves over the car. With what must be the last gasp of air left to him, Dolan screams out, For the love of God, Robinson! Um, an allusion to the cask of Amontillado as the latter drops the last piece of paving into place. Robinson pays a relatively small price of undergoing much physical and mental exhaustion, but he feels satisfied that he has done a great service to the memory of his late wife, whose voice finally falls silent. This silence is something of a relief to Robinson. The press reports Dolan missing, joking that he's playing dominoes or shooting pool somewhere with Jimmy Hoffa. Robinson notes that he often traveled along the same highway to the area where he buried Dolan alive. During his final trip, he urinated on the spot where he thought Dolan was buried. He notes that this was his final trip down the highway, and now he takes an alternate route. Robinson's wife's voice no longer haunts him, and that he finds a relief. So for my review, this is my first time rereading Dolan's Cadillac since I first bought Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Um, on the day that the book was published. Um, when I first bought it, 12-year-old me could not wait to dig into this collection of shorts, um, you know, which was bound with this incredible image, this striking image, and I still believe this might be Stephen King's best cover of the Castle Rock Scarecrow staked into the middle of the road as the twilight emerges in the background. So 12-year-old me was a huge fan of horror. Um, 12-year-old me was not a fan of crime stories, and 12-year-old me did not like Dolan's Cadillac. Too bad for 12-year-old me, uh, because 37-year-old me loved it. Um, and I can understand why I would have been put off of it in my youth. You see, when I was a kid, I wanted vampires and clowns and vampire clowns. I, I didn't want lengthy descriptions of the operation specifications of heavy machinery. But as an adult, this level of detail is staggering with the desert setting, the loss of morals, the embrace of the criminal element, the attention to detail, the mathematics and science. It felt very much like an episode of Breaking Bad. You know, one of those ones where Walt shines when he's an evil MacGyver. So it was, you know, reading it as an adult, I was able to bring with it my adult sensibilities along with the, the, the pieces of pop culture that I picked up along the way. And it's a wonderfully crafted revenge thriller with a sweet and damning payoff. It's clocking in at 63 pages. It's a lean, mean beast of a story without a single ounce of fat. Um, you know, some people, like the 12-year-old me, uh, micro-restless with the passages and pages dedicated to the minutia of Robinson's revenge scheme, but every word dedicated to first his training and then the plan itself places you in Robinson's shoes. And by the time he sees the Cadillac approaching, you feel like you have been digging in the desert for days. So I would say that Dolan's Cadillac is a... Phenomenal piece of short story uh, storytelling. I am more than anything else the the, the Stephen King cast as a um, hobby, as a passion, as a goal, as a um, endeavor has 
you know, yielded so many benefits. One, it has fine-tuned some analytical skills of my own. Um, I have created some some thought pieces that I'm 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 proud of. I have made observations about Stephen King's works that um, I did not observe the the first time around. But one thing that I, I I truly love about doing this podcast is there are times when I, I'm I'm revisiting something and I'm like reading it again through fresh eyes and I'm enjoying something that I never enjoyed before. And so when I read something like Dolan's Cadillac and I remember as a child just not liking it, thinking it's boring, um, to completely find myself, um, my, my youthful self, to, to know that I was wrong, 100% wrong, and that adult me uh, you know, totally understands what Stephen King was putting down, it's, it's definitely it's such a great treat. Okay, so some Stephen Kingisms. Uh, there's not a lot, um, but one that we have is the the teacher. Um, when Stephen King isn't writing about writers, uh, he will tend to write about teachers. Okay, then we have Suffer the Children from Wikipedia. Miss Emily Sidley teaches third grade. On one particular day while she is teaching spelling, she gets the disconcerting feeling that one of her students is staring at her. She turns around and notices that Robert, the quietest student, has his gaze fixed on her. During the following week, Miss Sidley eventually punishes Robert for her suspicions. Robert taunts her by asking her if she wants to see him change, which he does. Whether it really happened or was a figment of her imagination is not exactly explained and terrifies the teacher who runs screaming and is nearly run down by a bus. After the incident, Miss Sidley takes a leave of absence. When she returns, Robert taunts her at recess about there being more creatures at school posing as normal children. They have replaced the real children they look like, who are imprisoned with their doppelgangers. He says of the real Robert, I can hear him screaming, Mrs. Sidley. He wants me to let him out. The things Robert is saying soon get to Miss Sidley, and the terrified teacher decides to take drastic measures. She takes out her deceased brother's Luger pistol from a drawer and puts it in her purse. That day at school, she takes 12 of her students to a testing room where sound is well concealed and shoots each one dead. Another teacher comes in as Sidley is preparing to shoot a 13th student, and Sidley's bad back gives way as another teacher struggles with her. Mrs. Sidley is sent to a mental institution after the murders. She works with little preschoolers each day for therapy. One day she feels the fear that drove her to the crime and asks to be removed from the room. As she is taken away, some of the children slyly watch her, implying that they are also doppelgangers. That night, Mrs. Sidley commits suicide by slashing her throat, and her former psychiatrist soon focuses intently on the children. So my review. Um, First of all, I need to preface this, um, because as I record this, the thought of a a school shooting um, in which the shooter happens to be the teacher is... Um, very relevant, and it is a fear that many people have. So I don't know when you guys are listening to this. I don't know if some of you are listening to this in 2019, 2020, 2022, 5, 2030, um, or if you're listening to it the, the day that's published. But for those of you who are listening further down the road, um, currently our country is engaged in a uh, national debate over the possibility and the pros and cons of arming teachers in school. 
And this, to me, like many of Stephen King's works, seems to be a cautionary tale of what happens when you make that decision. Um, Because certainly um, there will be teachers who will have the wherewithal and the training and the right frame of mind and the right instincts and the right intentions and um, will be the right people for the job. But unfortunately, that won't be the case for everyone. And I just think that it's a very... Slippery slope with, uh, I don't know if this is a door that we want to enter. Um, and I'm sorry to get, to get political again, guys. I know that is a bone of contention among uh, half of the listeners um, listening. And I, I don't mean to alienate anybody. I just feel as though something like this speaks to the what if and what could be if you put the, the, the gun in the hands of someone that can't grasp the the power of the gun or cannot grasp the um, the reality in which we all live as we see what what happens here Miss Sidley does the unthinkable um, and murders her students um, so this is a nightmare scenario it is awful uh, and hopefully it remains in the pages of fiction and In terms of just it being a work of Stephen King, it very much feels like a companion piece to the equally surreal uh, Here Be Tigers that I just uh, reviewed from Skeleton Crew. You get the sense that uh, that entire story is the result from um, from the thought that's expressed in the story itself that children are monsters and here... Uh, similarly, there's this concept that children are monsters and how much they um, terrify adults, which was also expressed in it um, in, in numerous ways. But in one patches that passage that sticks out is um, Richie's mom um, thinking about how much um, she uh, she was scared of 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 her son and uh, her son's friends. So for Stephen Kingisms, again, just like Dolan's Cadillac, we have teachers and Easter eggs. Um, She is sentenced to Juniper Hill, which is also where Henry Bowers from It uh, was located when he became an adult. Then up next, we have Chattery Teeth from Wikipedia. In the story, salesman Bill Hogan notices an odd pair of walking chattery teeth. Odd due to their unusually large size and the fact that they are made of metal in a convenience store display. The clerk ends up giving Hogan the teeth, claiming they have been dropped off and no longer work. Hogan reluctantly, having been robbed by a hitchhiker once before, gives a ride to a hitchhiker outside the convenience store. His fears prove prophetic when the hitchhiker tries to carjack him and then kill him. During the struggle, Hogan wrecks the van and before the hitchhiker can recover and kill him, the teeth come to life and gruesomely dispatch the criminal. Hogan passes out to the vision of the chattery teeth dragging the hitchhiker's body off into the desert. Nine months later, Hogan stops in again at the same convenience store where he's unexpectedly reunited with the broken teeth again. He decides to buy the teeth again, realizing that instead of trying to kill him, the teeth want to protect him. His theory is proved correct when a dog snarls at him as he leaves and the teeth stir in his pocket, ready to attack anything that means him harm. He says also that he will give the the teeth to his son, so his son is always protected. So this is a weird little story, Um, you know, and it's just, it's fun because we have had 
um, cursed objects before in Stephen King's works, um, like the monkey um, in, in Skeleton Crew. Uh, but this here, uh, they are protective chattery teeth, and I don't know what we're supposed to take from that. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if there's much below the surface or if this is just a what-if idea that Stephen King ran with. He saw chattery teeth and thought about how they could be killer chattery teeth and just kind of wrote a story around it. I don't know if the chattery teeth, which is a, a symbol of childhood, the fact that it's protecting this adult is meant to uh, indicate that it is a symbol of the youth of the child remaining inside the adult, um, which then is, is symbolized with the um, passing of the teeth to the sun. It could be. I, I just don't know if it actually is. Um, so I, I don't really have much to say, um, but, uh, but, but I mean, it's, it's a fun story. And in terms of Stephen Kingisms, the, the one that really pops to mind is the fact that we have a car crash. Again, seriously. Guys, in a story about murderous toy teeth, he includes a car crash. I have long been on record at this point being kind of weirded out at the amount of car crashes he's included in his works. And if he were to include, you know, car crashes in everything that he has written after June 19th, 1999, that would be one thing. But his books and short stories and novellas are littered with car crashes all the way up to June 19th, 1999. And it's just at this point when I read a short story by Stephen King or a book by Stephen King and there is a car crash that is described in, in, in gruesome detail, it really weirds me out. Um, don't want to say that Stephen King is living a life like a Stephen King character in a Stephen King book, but... You got to admit, at the amount of car crashes that we see in Stephen King's works, it's a little freaky. Then we have Dedication. It tells the story of a black housemaid working in a hotel and an eccentric alcoholic and prejudiced writer who is a frequent guest there. The maid consumes some of the writer's semen, which was left on his sheets as part of a black magic spell in the hopes that it will pass talent and the ability along to her unborn son. The story is told, in part, in the past tense. King states in the introduction to the story that it was the inspiration for his novel Dolores Claiborne and that it was written partly to explore the idea of why such famous and talented people can sometimes be horrible in real life. So, review. First of all, this summary that I just read does not do the story justice. This is a quiet, it's an introspective, this is a weird little story sent against a period backdrop. Um, what the Wikipedia summary does get right is that it really feels very shades of Dolores Claiborne. So like my reintroduction to previous short stories, I was, uh, I was really charmed by this one. In previous rereads, I, I always gravitate to the flashier stories, uh, the Night Flyer or the End of the Whole Mess, right? But the, the dedication... I thought was a really gripping and well-fleshed-out story that kept me as hooked as any story involving vampires or the end-of-the-world scenarios. And it's also depressing. You know, it first saw print in 1988, but when our main character begins to describe the bigotry and xenophobia of anyone who isn't red-blooded American, it sadly feels uh, hauntingly appropriate uh, as I record this in 2018. So, Stephen Kingisms. JFK. That's the first and foremost one. The death of Kennedy has 
been referred to throughout all of, not all of, but throughout King's uh, history, uh, seen in the drawing of the three in Hearts and Atlantis, um, and most famously in 1122-63. Um, and the death of Kennedy plays a part in this story as well. Number two, writers. Uh, King is able to muse on a different sort of writer, the critically acclaimed bigot. Number three, like I just got through saying, there is a car crash. One of the characters in the author's book is killed in a car crash. Uh, number four, uh, Ka is a wind. Spoiler alert. See, I'm trying, guys. I'm trying to get better at this. Spoiler alert for the Dark Tower. Now, I mean, spoiler alert for the entire Dark Tower. Cry off if you haven't finished the series. So with what I'm about to say next, this is, this is your fault if you're listening to it and you haven't finished the Dark Tower. In it, King describes how Ka blew the story through him. Right? He says that he was a vessel through which a force larger than himself told its tale. King makes mention of a concept very similar to this in that the writer can be a divine wind chime. Nothing until wind blows through it. Number five, witch and sex. Here we have um, a witch woman involving herself in the magical pregnancy of our main character through very explicit scenes. Similarly, in Wizard and Glass, we have a dark witch who is obsessed with a young woman's sexuality, and pregnancy plays a part as well. So magic, black magic, and sex um, is something that we see in Stephen King's works. And then we have mirroring and twinning. The story plays off the fact that she has a son through magic means that results with him becoming an author, like his father. There's much discussion about their similarities and differences. King has always been fascinated with this concept as seen most potently in the Talisman and Dark Tower series. Up next, we have the Moving Finger from Wikipedia, a very ordinary man named Howard Mitla, who has a strange aptitude for jeopardy, is confronted by the bizarre sight of a human finger poking its way out of the drain in his apartment's bathroom sink. He tries to deny the the reality of what is happening, but the solitary digit eventually proves to be infinitely long and multi-jointed and capable of attacking him. Mitla burns it with a bottle of heavy-duty drain cleaner, then chops it off with a pair of electric hedge trimmers. Howard, after cutting up the fingers, starts thinking about the creature which it was attached. He realizes it really had multiple digits, and that there were several openings in the average bathroom, and ominous sound is heard from the toilet. Investigating reports of a noise coming from Howard's apartment, the police arrive to find him lying in a daze next to the toilet. He tells them, if you have to go to the bathroom, I definitely suggest you hold it. The lid pops up. The story ends with the officer lifting the lid after Howard asks, Final Jeopardy, how much do you want to wager? Now, guys, I kind of love this story. How can you not? The concept is simultaneously specific and bizarre. Of course, it raises the natural question. How did he come up with this? Now, most stories and books, I can understand. They start with uh, what ifs, like I said before. What if the boogeyman was real? This leads us to it. What if that fog rolling in was truly hiding monsters? That leads to the mist. What if your dog has rabies? What if your car was haunted? So on and so on. You can imagine his keen eye and imaginative mind slamming together when these moments happen. But but with this, there's no what if that makes sense here. I mean, sure, yeah, like well, what if you saw a finger poking out of a drain? But it comes back to how the hell would you even think of that? And set against the backdrop of Jeopardy, no less. I mean, that's the part 
that really gets me. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's not thematically connected. It's just funny. Or maybe I like it so much because it reminds me of something that you would read out of um, children of the 80s and 90s. I, I, I know that you will appreciate this. Um, but it's something that you would read out of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark by Alvin Schwartz. Um, I can very easily see one of those really creepy illustrations by Stephen uh, Gamel, um, you know, of a long finger snaking out of a drain. Doesn't it just seem very appropriate for those of you who know, who know what I'm talking about? Now, this story is so absurd, and that is a full-on compliment. It is a testament to King's ability that he's able to get us to care about this story of a man in literally a life-or-death struggle with a bathroom finger. I mean, that is insane. And, you know, he, he fakes you out for a second. You know, like, he, he makes you wonder if he... It, it makes you wonder if Howard killed his wife, that the finger was just a homicidal manifestation of his guilt, but nope, nope. It really is just what it, 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 it presents itself to be. Just a guy fighting your average day drain monster finger and i loved revisiting this story uh stephen kingisms one bathroom horror uh, we have seen bathroom horror before in the night flyer in Dreamcatcher. um you know specifically in Dreamcatcher, there is a uh you know there's a monster in the toilet that is, that is memorable we have the dream sequence which is something that pops up in many of stephen king's works um and just in general drain pipe horror of course that's something that we have seen in it okay up next we have sneakers wikipedia recording studio executive john tell notices a pair of dirty old sneakers in an adjacent stall while using the restroom at work he first assumes that the shoes belong to a fellow employee or delivery person, but when he visits the bathroom again throughout the week, he notices that not only have the shoes not moved, they are now surrounded by the bodies of dead flies and other bugs. Eventually, Tell discovers that the shoes were trademarks of a dealer who supplied the local talent with cocaine and who was killed in the bathroom stall during an apparent robbery. Tell finally confronts the ghost who informs him that he was brutally killed by Jannings, Tell's boss, a drug addict, who is heavily in debt to the dealer at the time. Jannings used the stolen cocaine to fund his rehabilitation and his rise to executive management. This prompts Tell to quit his job, telling Jannings he is a worthless bastard before he goes. So review. Uh, King, you know, again, I mean, he takes a everyday concept, he turns on his head, and here we have sneakers and his ability to spin a little ghost story out of it. Um... You know, I mean, I guess my question here is, is it just a story of sneakers or is King telling a story of repressed homosexuality? I mean, the main character is advanced upon by a male colleague. King later makes the point of letting us know that in order to keep his mind off the sneakers, he goes to bars and strikes up a conversation with the men that are there. He's called out for being gay, which he denies. So when King writes, he had a sudden revelation, or perhaps you called something this strong an epiphany. It was this. Sometimes you could get rid of the ghosts that were haunting your life if you could only work up enough courage to face them. So rather than opening up a closet, it's a bathroom door, and unsurprisingly, he sees the ghost with his own face. It's only when he's able to confront the ghost when he's able to confront Jennings. Maybe I'm not doing the mental gymnastics that I'm supposed to, or maybe it's just not in the text, but to me, if that's what this is about, 
it doesn't seem that it tracks very well. You know, if I was a better podcast host, I'd double back um, and really support this theory with with, with more content. I, I But really, I just wanted to get on to the next story, home delivery. Now, this is where you guys come in. Um, I famously um, was... Uh, flippant about the boogeyman. There was a lot to unpack with the boogeyman. I made a big joke out of it, and I have received more emails about the boogeyman than I have about any other Stephen King work. So if you have thoughts or a theory on um, or a thesis of what you think Sneakers is about, um, write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So for Stephen Kingisms, we have the recording studio. So Larry Underwood um, and DJ from Revival spring to mind. We have Bathroom Horror, which we have seen before in this collection. Dreamcatcher, Moving Finger, It, Night Flyer, The Shining all come to mind. The dream sequence, of course, is something that we see again and again and again. A stutterer. At one point, Tell is talking to a stutterer named George. Of course, the most famous stutterer of all of fiction is the brother of a dead boy named George, the one and only Bill Denbro. Okay, guys, home delivery. From Wikipedia, the protagonist of the story is Maddie Pace, a timid and indecisive young woman who lives on a small island named Genesalt, or Jenny, off the coast of Maine. Maddie is both pregnant and a widow, having recently lost her husband in a fishing boat accident. After scattering of initial outbreaks, dead bodies all over the world begin to reanimate en masse and attack the living. The source of the phenomenon is eventually traced to Star Wormwood, a bizarre alien construct orbiting above the ozone layer at the Earth's south pole. A space shuttle under joint American-Chinese authority visits the site and promptly is met with disaster. After further attempts to destroy the ball fail, the zombie plague spreads and civilization collapses. Jenny's inhabitants gather up all the available firearms to prepare for their own attack, which all too soon erupts from the island's small cemetery. The island's men are forced to destroy their undead loved ones as they crawl out of their graves. The still-moving pieces of the reanimated corpses are then burned with kerosene and the remains plowed underground by a bulldozer. Frank Daggett, the elderly man who did most of the organizing of the successful defense, suffers a fatal heart attack and has himself blasted to pieces so he won't reanimate. While she is hearing about the battle at the nearby cemetery from her neighbor, Maddie recalls her own confrontation with the animated corpse of her husband come back to get her from the bottom of the sea. She succeeds in destroying him and faces the future, however grim, with renewed confidence and hope. So review. This is King's only real zombie story. And, okay, so I should say this is King's only traditional zombie story. Now, he's had people come back from the dead. He's had hordes of zombie-like infected, um, you know, the, the, the uh, incel um, and slow mutants in the Dark Tower series. But this is the first, you know, truly, you know, uh, taking a page out of George Romero's book of zombies kind of zombie here. And... So it's just good to see that it, it isn't just, you know, a traditional zombie story. It's a traditional zombie story. Now, nowadays, zombies are always the result of some science gone bad. Zombies infect you. You die. Your, your body is resurrected through either a spore or a virus, whatever. I mean, you know, the, the, the threat of zombies nowadays will always come from the recently dead. You know, these zombies are... You know, these zombies that, that we see in The Walking Dead or, you know, most movies now are, are the people who have died by another recent zombie. But what we see here in this book are the zombies that um, 
I just think of are, are from my youth. So if I had a, you know, make zombies great again hat, I would be wearing it right now. Um, you know, these zombies are spat out from their graves. You know, this is your haunted, you know, Halloween spooky cartoonish imagery of graveyards bursting with rotting corpses under a full moon and a purple sky. You know, and the explanation for the zombies is it's just bonkers, you know? An extraterrestrial ball of writhing worms enters the Earth's orbit above the hole in the ozone layer to infect the world's population with its writhing mass of reanimators. That's great! And as King presents the life of Maddie, you know, he teases the zombie apocalypse. So by the time he writes, then Jack died and things started getting weird, not just for Maddie either, but for everyone, he's established who she is. You care. You care about her. He puts the person before the larger story. The character is the story. And what do we know about the character? She's defined by being in an in-between state. She's pregnant. She's not yet a mother. She can't go back to who she was, but she can't be who she will be yet. She is defined by one particular character trait, that of indecision. With this, King serves up zombie apocalypse to highlight the indecision of one widowed island girl as she progresses to the next step in her life. And what better horror trope than to use a zombie? Because, after all, a zombie is the horrific manifestation of Maddie herself, a figure caught in between. The creature's undead state is a metaphor for her own indecision and transitional period of life. And she makes her decision when her zombie husband comes back for her. In a wonderful moment of life and death, she kicks out of her indecision and chooses life by combating the dead to save her child. So, Stephen Kingisms, 19. Maddie's dad drops dead in lane 19 of a bowling alley. Number two, pregnant at the end of the world. Franny um, from The Stand. No, not the Crimson King's mother, guys. That was a joke. I need you to understand that what I was talking about in my review of The Stand was a joke. Um, it's also very similar, being pregnant at the end of the world, uh, to Joe Hill's The Fireman, uh, which I reviewed. If you're interested, you can uh, read my review. Um, just head back to December of 2016. Um, and then we have uh, the dead coming back from the sea. Um, we've seen this before um, in, in Creepshow, uh, something to tide you over. And not only do we have some Stephen Kingisms, we also have some Easter eggs. We have Little Tall Island um, is referenced, and Little Tall Island is the setting for Dolores Claiborne and Storm of the Century. Number two, Selena St. George. Not only does this take place in the same island, but it references Dolores' daughter in a perfect moment. Not only is Selena's name dropped, but it's when the character is ruminating on domestic abuse, not knowing that Selena was a victim of heavy domestic and sexual abuse at the hands of her own father. Now, this is a very nice, subtle reference by our author that um, just pops when you know exactly what he's talking about. And then, of course, one of my favorite Easter eggs is um, whenever Stephen King references Inside View, which is the tabloid magazine. Um, in this case, it is reporting the zombie outbreak. But um, Inside View, to me, most uh, famously um, appeared in a short story found within the pages of this collection, Night Flyer, um, in starring the, the character Richard Dees, who also made an appearance in The Dead Zone, 
And the Night Flyer also was a great um, direct-to-DVD movie in the, the, the 90s starring the sadly deceased Miguel Ferrar, who I will be talking about at length in the upcoming Hanging with Agent Cooper, a Twin Peaks podcast. Um, so make sure you keep your, your ears open for that one, guys. If you are fans of David Lynch and Mark Frost's Twin Peaks and you are a fan of the Stephen King cast, then you have a brand new podcast to listen to. So uh, keep your ears open. Up next, we have the 10 o'clock people. From Wikipedia, the main character, Pearson, is a smoker trying to quit for health reasons. He discovers a horrible aspect of reality that only those attempting to quit like him are capable of seeing, that many of the people living among us in positions of power, including many police officers and political figures and even the vice president of the United States, are in fact inhuman monsters disguised as people. A unique chemical imbalance caused by his smoking only on his morning break thus the reference to 10 o'clock in the title, makes him able to see the true nature of these creatures through their disguises. When Pearson first notices one of them, a young black man named Dudley Duke Reinman stops him from screaming and calms him down. Dudley later explains that if Pearson wants to live, he must go about his day as usual and meet him at 3 o'clock after work. Pearson does as he is told and discovers that his boss is also one of the Batmen. He leaves work a bit shaking meets Dudley and goes to a bar with him. After explaining that smokers trying to quit are the only ones who see them, Dudley invites Pearson to a meeting of those who can see the Batman. Shortly after, the leader of the group says he has big news for them. Pearson, who already had some suspicion about the idolized leader, realizes that the man is stalling for time and gives a warning. The treacherous leader then says the Batman have granted them amnesty, but soon after a horde of them attack those in the meeting, many die. Pearson, along with two others, manage to escape the meeting. The trio flee to Omaha and form a new resistance group of the 10 o'clock people. The group successfully kills many Batmen, and Pearson notes that their war against the Batman was like quitting smoking. You have to start somewhere. Review. Despite the fact that the subject matter is horrific. Uh, the story pro- progresses as a tight thriller. It's a character thrust into extraordinary circumstance, not unlike uh, Neo in the Matrix. You know, here we have Pearson awakening to the fact that people around him are Batmen and humanoid creatures masquerading as humans. When this was published in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, I couldn't help but immediately think, as I read it again, and I couldn't help but immediately think, of They Live due to the fact that they are very similar, despite the fact that only one of these stories is graced by the presence of the one, the only, the late, the great Roderick Toombs. Guys, I should love the 10 o'clock people, and I love the concept of the 10 o'clock people. I just always have a problem getting into the 10 o'clock people. For whatever reason, and I have honestly spent a significant amount of time trying to figure out why, I just can't get into it. I couldn't crack the code of why it doesn't hook me. It just doesn't. It's not one that I would recommend. It's still fun, and it's got well-written um, you know, passages of grotesque descriptions of the Batman. Um, you know, I mean, the, the strength of the story lies in the strength of all King stories, and that's the truth at the heart of the matter. Despite the fact that the story is about a man discovering that our civilization has been infiltrated by monstrous creatures, it's inspired by an observant smoker trying to kick the habit. 
just like Insomnia, for all of its batshittery of auras, superpowers, little doctors, and malevolent beings, it starts because one guy is having trouble sleeping. It grounded the fantastical with the relatable everyday occurrence. And similarly, while we all might not be able to relate to quitting smoking, we can get behind that visual of a smoker and the concept of a man attempting to quit. This image, this concept, and connotation allows King to ground the fantastical elements into the everyday tapestry of our own world. Stephen Kingsons, up first, we have addiction. This is something, of course, we have seen um, on numerous occasions throughout the works of Stephen King because King himself is someone that has struggled with that, but successfully has beaten. Up next, we have monsters masquerading as people. He'll later go on to use this concept with low men, a race of monsters um, known as the Can Toy, who wear the masks of human faces. Bookshop. Kate's mystic bookshop is the meeting place for the 10 o'clock people, not unlike how the Manhattan restaurant of the mind plays a significant role in the Dark Tower books. Okay, up next, we have the house on Maple Street. After a summer spent abroad, the four Bradbury children return to their home on Maple Street and discover that something is growing upward through the house's walls from below, replacing wood and plaster with metal and machinery, counting down to some cataclysmic event. Although somewhat afraid of what this was, Trent, the eldest of the four, realizes that they have an opportunity to rid themselves of both their beleaguered mother of the tyrannical Lewis Evans, uh, Lou, their, hatred, their, their hated and feared stepfather. As the countdown approaches its final minutes, they contrive to lock Lou in his study and leave him to his fate, escaping the house just in time to watch as it raises itself from its foundations and blasts away into the clouds. The story ends with the children waiting on the curb for their mother to return, shaken but glad to be free from Lou's oppressive rule. You know what's great is just how King invokes both Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling in this story. As the main character's last name is Bradbury, and one classic episode of The Twilight Zone is The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, um, which is a perfect marriage because this story is a sci-fi fairy tale with an evil step-parent and the victimized children who managed to reclaim their lives again. And so we have a mix here, as I've said, of Bradbury, of The Twilight Zone, but I wouldn't be surprised if King was also playing around with a little bit of C.S. Lewis. I mean, after all, one of the characters' names is Lewis, and the idea that you have four children facing the um, something that's fantastical is straight out of the, the Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, but going back to this, I, I feel like the story is too long, but, you know, King nevertheless spends his time, you know, building the mystery of the mutating house and the story itself is based on a fun conceit. What if your house was a spaceship? You know, it's fun watching this tale of Narnia-esque children discover not a door in the wardrobe, but the fact that their house is a slowly mutating rocket. You know, once King introduces the ticking countdown, you can't wait to get to the end. As always, King manages to wring out tension in the most insane of scenarios, and once the children are running from the house as the engines rubble to life, the story is, pun intended, firing on all cylinders. Okay, up next we have Fifth Quarter. So, from Wikipedia, the story follows Jerry Tarkanian, a crook looking to avenge the death of his friend Barney who died at the hand of his own accomplice after taking part in an armored car heist. 
Unknown to them, Barney managed to get to Tarkarian before he died and told him of the heist and of the map divided amongst his killers that reveals the location and the stolen money. At the start of the story, Tarkanian has tracked down two of the men, Keenan and Sarge, who are about to make a deal between themselves. He manages to hold them at gunpoint and forces them to give them their sections of the map. However, things go wrong when the third man, Jagger, appears during a confrontation and attacks them both. In the firefight that follows, Sarge is killed but contributes to Jagger's downfall when his body obstructs Jagger's path. This gives Tarkarian the advantage advantage necessary to kill Jagger. Despite not having Jagger's part of the map, Tarkarian now knows enough to recover the money. This story ends as Tarkarian leaves the scene. Tarkarian knows that his debt to his friend has been paid and he himself now has a lot to be grateful for. From Wikipedia also it says that this plot is similar to a novel that the character George Stark is writing in the dark half. And this is the only work of short fiction that King ever wrote under a pen name. So my review, um, I don't like it and I don't have much to say about it. I just kind of falls into what I said earlier about Dolan's Cadillac, except with Dolan's Cadillac, I enjoyed it. I just don't happen to enjoy um, this one. I'm sorry, guys. I, I really I can't, I can't add to it. Um, and then we have the doctor's case from Wikipedia. Dr. Watson narrates a hairful, hairful heretofore unreleased case in which, what a stupid word that is, heretofore, unreleased case in which he and Holmes are called by Inspector Lestrade on an unexpectedly rainy day to investigate the murder of the sadistic Lord Hull. Each member of Hull's family, his wife and three sons, has reason to murder him. His wife and bow-legged son suffer from constant abuse, while another son was doomed to never receive more than a pittance due to his placement in the family line. Furthermore, Hull's family endured his treatment in the hopes that he would leave them with his considerable wealth. However, they had recently learned that Hull had rewritten his will so that none of them received a thing. Despite these motives, the family had effectively given each other alibis, and the murder itself is effectively a locked-room mystery. There's no place in Hull's study for anyone to hide without being seen, and all of the doors and windows were locked by the Lord himself. Holmes is eager to solve this mystery, but is allergic to Hull's numerous cats. Watson, however... Notices that a certain table in the locked study casts odd shadows on the rug. When he goes to check the table, he discovers an illusion and demonstrates that the table has been rigged. The bookshelf's lowest shelf is, in fact, a photorealistic painting. The murderer, Hull's artist son, Jory, had perfectly rendered the bottom shelf, then pasted the results against the back table legs. When his father announced a new will, Jory made it into the study, crouched behind the table, and rushed to stab his father at the right moment. A cursory glance would not betray the illusion on a dark day, but on a study one, a lack of shadows being cast by the table legs would have been noticeable. To help make the illusion perfect, Jory had prepared shadows out of black felt, laid them down at roughly the place where the shadows should be. Unfortunately, he was caught by shadows on a day when there should be none. Furthermore, Hull had time to scream before he died, arousing the attention of his servants and making it impossible for Jory to either collect his paintings or frame the murder as a break-in gone wrong. Instead, Jory stole and burnt the new will, guaranteeing that he and his family would receive their inheritance. As Watson explains his insights, he slowly comes to the realization that Jory could not have executed the murder on his own, and at the very least, everyone in the family knew of it and was lying for him. Holmes who had already reached that conclusion while listening to Watson's narrative, 
gently chides him for his inability to understand the depths of human depravity. Watson also realizes that Holmes had understood everything not long from the beginning of Watson's story, yet deliberately kept his silence, letting Watson have his moment in the sun. Rather than resenting his thunder being stolen, Holmes was genuinely impressed with the deductive light Watson demonstrated. Holmes and Lestrade discuss the various sentences that the Hulls will receive, um, if the case is brought before court, jury is guaranteeing execution, whilst the other two sons, whilst, love whenever someone writes that on Wikipedia, the other two sons would be jailed for life and the wife jailed for some time in a women's prison. They eventually decide that the world is perhaps better off with all, without Hull in it, and thus conspire to conceal the truth of what has occurred. Holmes and Watson collect a painting in the shadows, while Lestrade unlocks one of the windows in the room they leave, and inform the waiting police that Hull was murdered in an attempted break-in. So um, my review of this is that a story like this, when King wrote it in the 90s, there wasn't a Sherlock Holmes resurgence um, the, the way that we have seen in the 2000s with um, the Robert Downey Jr., um, you know, Sherlock Holmes movies and Sherlock on BBC starring Benedict Cumberbatch. And as I record this, Um, You know, I'm not quite sure when I'm going to be releasing these, but when I record this, last week the last trailer for Avengers Infinity War came out, and I cannot wait to see the two most famous um, modern-day Sherlock Holmes characters share some screen time together as Robert Downey Jr. and Benedict Cumberbatch both appear in the same movie. Um, I, I really hope that they take advantage of that. Uh, but no, this this was a really, really well-written ode um, to Sherlock Holmes. And by focusing on Watson, it, it's just a great, you know, flip of the, the, the traditional tale. And like I said, for anyone that has watched Sherlock um, or the, or the um, Elementary, is that the one on CBS? Or the Sherlock Holmes movies, or is just a fan of um, Arthur Conan Doyle, I, I, I think that you'll... You'll uh, enjoy this one. It's a good whodunit um, using uh, the, the most famous detectives of all time. Up next, we have Omni's Last Case. Uh, the story begins as a Raymond Chandler pastiche and follows a private investigator named Clyde Omni as he goes about what he thinks is just another morning in 1930s Los Angeles. He soon discovers that his life as he knows it is falling apart. All of his lifelong friends and associates are abruptly departing in one fashion or another for reasons ranging from winning the lottery to terminal cancer, and many of them express disdain towards Omni in place of farewells. He is brooding alone in his office when he receives his final client, Landry, the crime fiction author who created him. Having suffered the loss of his wife and child as well as a severe case of shingles, Landry took an overdose of medication and found himself in the world of of his creation. He demonstrates that his will is law in this world and explains to a helpless Omni that he intends to take Omni's place to live a life of eternal adventure and excitement. Omni is cast into oblivion, or so it seems. Instead, Omni finds himself in the year 1994, occupying the vacated body of his creator. Although he realizes his previous existence was a sham, He also despises the ugly, bland, and generally inadequate nature of the real world. He announces that he has begun to practice the craft of writing so that he might return to his fictional home in order to take back his world and his life and end Landry's. 
So my review of this, I do not recall reading Omni's last case the first time around. It's not a story that I had, um, you know, gone back to reread since the uh, time I originally read Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And as you read it, there is just a mounting sense of existential dread that just gets under your skin. It's suffocating. You feel that something is wrong, that the world itself is turning against you. Um, and, you know, you're right to think so because the world is turning against um, our main character as Omni discovers that he is just a character in someone else's creation, which is a horrifying concept. And, you know, we've seen this done before um, in fiction. A very popular um, example of this is Grant Morrison's Animal, Ran- Animal Man um, run from the comics in the 1980s. And um, spoiler alerts for, uh, I can't even say, I'll just... It's hard to say, right? I mean, without spoiling it. But uh, I guess, spoiler alert, if you haven't read all of Stephen King's works. That way you don't know exactly what I'm talking about. But um, in The Dark Tower, it it turns out that Stephen King is... um, He appears in his own books. And the characters that uh, of The Dark Tower encounter the man that wrote their tales. There, there's a little bit more to it than just that. They, they aren't just characters. They do exist in another world, but they do meet Stephen King, who has written of their tales that are blowing into him um, through Cot. Um, so we have writers in Stephen Kingism. So specifically, writers faced with supernatural elements involving aspects of their fictional world, as seen in The Dark Half or Lisey's story. We have twinners. Um, here there are shades of The Dark Half, Um, And like I said, um, fictional characters meeting their author gods. So I mentioned uh, The Dark Tower, and I'll just say that The Dark Tower isn't the only one. Um, There's more out there from Stephen King. Uh, In Easter eggs, we have flexible bullets. Uh, This is a term that is used here, um, and of course... uh, um, it was used um, as a title in Skeleton Crew. Then we have Head Down uh, from Wikipedia. This essay chronicles the 1989 season for his son Owen's Little League baseball team, Bangor West. He takes the reader through the ups and the downs of the season, giving details of every game as well as practice sessions and the time on the road when focusing on the reaction of the players and the coaches. This builds to the team winning a hard-fought victory in the final game of the tournament become the main state champions. The team then goes forward to the Eastern Regional Tournament, only to be beaten in the second round. However, the story ends on a high note as the team coach, Dave Mansfield, is honored as Amateur Coach of the Year by the United States Baseball Federation. The team also featured eventual Major League pitcher Matt Kinney. Um, review? Uh, at, okay, so um, as being someone that can't stand baseball, I'm not a fan of sports, um, this does not really speak to me. Um, it is sweet that he is writing this and um, that it is about, you know, Owen's um, baseball team. And like I had said in the, the I think the last episode, the, the fact that Stephen King just wrote a book with Owen, Sleeping Beauties, it's, it's amazing to read this um, about a, a father's viewing of his son's little league team you know it's such an amazing passage of time and 
where this boy grew up and, and the, the man that he grew up to be. So there's something to be said about it. That's what I get out of it. I mean, the, the ins and outs of the baseball, I, I just, it's not, that it's not for me. What is interesting is that you do, if you do go on the SK tour in Bangor, um, and I, I advise all of you to Google SK Tours Bangor, Maine. Um, and if you are in the area or if you're on the Northeast, you should you know check it out. Go to Maine. You don't have to stay in Bangor. You don't have to take an entire vacation in Bangor, but just head up to Maine and then take a drive to Bangor, um, and then you know head to another Maine location on the coast. But um, you know at least spend a day in Bangor to to do the SK tour because you'll really. If you're a Stephen King fan, you'll love it. And one of the things that that Stu does, he'll take you to the baseball field that King um, paid for, and he paid, you know, he contracted a um, major league baseball um, field developer, and uh, you know, so most kids just have an old rundown field to play their baseball games on, but you know. Um, the, the kids of Bangor are able to play on a major league field um, because of Stephen King. And to know that that was the case of Owen, who we're reading about here, is it's pretty cool. And then we have Brooklyn August. It's a poem, uh, reflective in tone, a nostalgic look back at what many consider to be the glory days of baseball and America's national pastime, focusing on the heyday of the Los Angeles Dodgers and their days as the Brooklyn Dodgers under the management of Walter Altson. The poem title reflects the tone of the poem, describes the team's 1956 heyday at their Ebbets Field ground, now long since demolished. The poem mentions many of the players associated with the club, celebrating their accomplishments and ends on a wistful note that the writer can still see if he closes his eyes, again bringing in the main theme of the poem, the golden age of the past. And again, um, as I said in Skeleton Crew, I'm not going to review poems, and I don't really get anything out of baseball, so unfortunately, guys, I can't really speak about this. All right, and then lastly, we have The Beggar and the Diamond. It tells the tale of an old beggar named Ramu who has had a miserable life. One day, Ramu was walking along, thinking about his unhappy existence and feeling angry at God. God, at the request of an archangel who felt pity for the beggar, drops a massive diamond on his path in plain sight. The diamond is worth so much that it would feed him and all his descendants for several generations. On the ground, Ramu has decided, after some ponderings, that he should not be angry about his life or blame God because he still has a few things to be grateful for, such as retaining his sight at such an old age. To illustrate himself how much worse life could be if he were blind, he decides to close his eyes as he walks. Ironically, he does not see the diamond because of this and merrily walks past it, missing it just by inches. God takes back the diamond and puts an ironwood branch further up the path. Back in heaven, God asks, the only difference is that Ramu shall find the branch and shall serve him as a walking stick until the last of his days. The archangel asks God, have you just taught me a lesson, God? God answers, I don't know. Have I? Um, so, I mean, this is just, you know, a nice little fable, um, with a, you know, punchline of an ending, isn't it? Isn't it? That's what I get out of it. I mean, is there a message here or is this king just kind of being, you know, winking at us? Um, I don't know. You tell me right in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, guys. So at, um, one hour and two minutes, um, that's it that I have, now concluded all of my thoughts on Nightmares and Dreamscapes, a story collection that I 
will always have strong affinity for due to the fact that it was always my first new Stephen King book and nothing will ever take that away from me. Um, okay, so even though I have finished all of my thoughts about the written works, I still have some thoughts on the audiovisual representations of some stories found here, specifically one story, Dolan's Cadillac. So make sure that you stick around for my next episode in which I review uh, the adaptation of Dolan's Cadillac, uh, starring Wes Bentley and Christian Slater. It is definitely something that I have some thoughts on. So make sure you, you tune in next week for that. Um, in the meantime, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast. I can make you mine Taste your lips of wine Anytime, night or day Only trouble is I'm dreaming my life away. I need you so that I could die. I love you so, and that is why whenever I want you, all I have to do is dream, dream.